I'm Steve Van Core, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. In each episode, we interview a municipal or county leader who is in a position to share interesting and useful insights into local government. Let's get right to it. Our guest today uh, is not a Florida city manager or county administrator. Our guest today is an author who's written a really good book, uh, a good book that every city manager, county administrator, assistant city manager really needs to get and put on the shelf. The title of the book is called, perfectly titled, The Mayor Married Who? Tim Casey, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. All right, let's let's talk. I want to start with the book, and then I want to go back a little bit about Tim Casey. Let's let's get right to the punchline. The mayor married who? Tell us what the story was and why it was the last story in your book. <laughs> well, after a 40-year career in California city management, I thought I had uh, seen it all, done it all, or heard it all. <clears throat> but literally in the month before my retirement, my longtime executive assistant came to the office and said, we have a problem. And I said, what is that? And she said, uh, the mayor married a girl and she can't get the marriage certificate. And I said, well, wait a minute. What do you mean the mayor, the mayor married a girl? He's already married. No, he didn't personally marry the girl. He presided over the wedding. The, uh, the bride's husband is about to be shipped overseas to Afghanistan and the military needs the marriage certificate in order to make sure she gets whatever spousal benefits she's entitled to if something happens to him overseas. So she said, I have her, I have her mother on the line, you gotta speak with her. So I picked up the phone and identified myself and found myself I talking, talking to a, a woman from a neighboring community who basically had known the mayor and had asked whether he was authorized to officiate a wedding ceremony. Uh, he apparently went to the city attorney who told him no, and then he went back to the mother and said, apparently I'm authorized to uh, conduct the ceremony. So we, uh, we talked a little bit. I went down to the city attorney's office and said, did the mayor come and ask you if he could officiate a wedding ceremony? And the uh, city attorney who had kind of a little grumpy demeanor goes, yeah, I, I told him he couldn't. And I gave him the paperwork to prove that he couldn't. Got back on the phone with the mother and, uh, I said, did the mayor say he could marry your daughter and your son-in-law? Yes, and he sent me some papers from the city attorney's office marked up with yellow highlighter. And I go, well, I think that's the information the city attorney gave him to say that he could not officiate over the wedding ceremony. So uh, a few quick calls to the county of Orange. Uh, we got a hold of the uh, office of the, uh, the clerk recorder, which basically oversaw civil wedding ceremonies. They basically said if we could get that couple to the courthouse the next morning, which was the day that the young man was to be deployed, uh, they would put them at the front of their line. They would pretend like the original wedding certificate license had been lost. Uh, they would conduct a civil ceremony, issue a new certificate at no cost, and they'd be married. And things went perfectly the next day. And it was just one more example of the unexpected curveballs that face 
city managers and county executives all over the country where uh, you have to drop you drop what you're doing and go put out the fire it was a well what's what's interesting to me about this story is several things but one is your first thought has to be oh i've got a really bad public relations problem on my hand i have a married mayor who went ahead and married somebody else a girl as it was described it's like uh oh this is going to be a pr nightmare <laughs> well it turns out that the mayor didn't quite read the memo fully uh, despite your guy's best effort to get it in writing, get it clear, uh, as often happens, busy people don't read the details. Now you've got an operational problem that you could argue it was not my fault, not my issue. Uh, neighboring county, different administration, but the city manager and his or her staff steps in and, and makes it right for these people. Uh, really cool outcome, uh, way, to, way to work across the aisle to, to turn it what was at first a PR problem, right, into an operational problem and into a solution. That's very cool. Thank you. Thank you. It was a fun way to end the career. <laughs> and so speaking of that career, California government, and what I love about this conversation is not just the book, The Mayor Married Who, uh, with uh, longtime city uh, manager Tim Casey, but the examples you're giving and the stories you talk about happened really far away from Florida, but applicable to us uh, right here in the Sunshine State. Tell a little bit about your 40-year career in California city government. Just, just share a couple minutes about who Tim Casey is. Well, basically, I uh, grew up in Los Angeles County in a city that actually had the, uh, the, the council manager form of government, but I had no idea that that's how our city was governed. I actually uh, graduated from uh, USC uh, in 1972 with a degree in sociology and then figured out, had to figure out where do I go from here. Uh, for some reason, I'd always had a calling for public service. So I uh, started USC's graduate program in public administration uh, at the ripe old age of 21 or 22, as I recall. Uh, for some reason, most of those classes were held in downtown L.A. to make it convenient for um, other professionals from the federal government, state government, county and city to leave their offices at five o'clock and go take their classes at the Biltmore Hotel. So I found myself uh, kind of a young greenhorn uh, among, a, among a sea of mid-career professionals. And at the time, I was working at a uh, uh, an educational oceanarium called Marine Land of the Pacific, something of a precursor to SeaWorld. Well, we and, have a Marine Land here too, by the way. Oh, very good. <laughs> and I was bellyaching one day to one of my coworkers that uh, I had started my graduate classes and I felt like I was the only student that had no government working experience. She said, well, my, my dad's the city manager of Manhattan Beach and he... Uh, he always has a couple of graduate students working for him as part-time interns. And I said, wow, that sounds great. Only one question, what's a city manager? I had never heard of the job. I had never heard of the profession. And she, without missing a beat said, well, most people think that the mayor runs the city, but it's really the city manager. Let me give my dad a call and see if he'll give you an interview. So about two weeks later, um, I was starting as a part-time management intern for uh, Gail Martin, the longtime city manager of Manhattan Beach. And that was the start of a 40-year career spanning four California cities, Manhattan Beach, Ventura, Redondo Beach, and ultimately Laguna Niguel here in Orange County. And uh, 
Fortunately, I ended up spending 31 of those 40 years actually as the city manager of either Redondo Beach or Laguna Niguel. Wow. So you kind of walked right into it. Um, but, you know, just so you know, it's not too late to change careers if you want. <laughs> <laughs> so along the way, you must have decided this is good stuff. Uh, I need to start taking notes because someday I'm, I'm going to, well, maybe you thought it was going to be a tell-all book. You thought, let me have a little fun with this. <laughs> and, and let me, what motivated you to start saying, I need to write this stuff down? Yeah, it was interesting. I think as most of your uh, <clears throat> ultimate podcast listeners will appreciate, I would head off to my state and national uh, city managers meetings annually. <clears throat> and at the end of a, of a day of sessions, usually around 4, 4.30, you'd find the uh, you know, the local hotel bar, uh, share stories over a glass of wine or two. And ultimately, uh, one of my California colleagues was responsible for putting together a session at one of our California city manager meetings. And uh, it was a session just on some of the funnier, wackier things that had happened to people along their professional journey. So uh, he solicited ideas and I came up with one. He put me on a panel. Uh, people seemed to enjoy the story. And afterwards, I thought to myself, wow, um, that was kind of interesting. Uh, folks really do appreciate some of the uh, lighter uh, moments of, of these serious careers. So I started going back in my memory bank and just started an outline going back literally to, uh, uh, to my first job as an intern. Uh, keeping fairly detailed bullet notes so that I could write easily once the time came. And that time came last spring when uh, they closed all of the golf courses in Southern California, and I had to find something to fill my time. So I locked myself in the upstairs office for uh, two to three hours a day for about six weeks, um, and the book was born. And then I found a, a publishing company that seemed to be uh, reasonable and fit my needs and uh, uh, the book the book came out in late July. And it's available on Amazon. Well, yeah. we can't get past this without telling us what was that one story? What was that, <laughs> that, that one story you told? Well, the uh, the I think that the the panel the panel subject name, I guess the it was was called Fabulous Flops. Um, and it was uh, looking for stories about things that seemed to be a great idea at the time and and went south on you. So uh, in Redondo Beach, the, uh, the police department came to me one day and said that the, the local traffic court judges were very disappointed um, in the traffic violator schools that were being operated by you know, private firms and individuals. And they felt that they had become, I guess you might call a certificate mills. In, in California, if you get a speeding ticket, uh, you can have that removed from your record by going to an eight-hour traffic school, um, passing a test at the end, <clears throat> and getting a certificate from the, the school operator. Well, the, the local judges felt that the, the local traffic schools were simply taking the money and sending a certificate without bothering to have folks show up for the eight hours of instruction. So we got the idea of starting a city traffic violator school. We uh, found a... Uh, uh, a person in Redondo Beach with an educational background who worked with our police department to develop a curriculum. Uh, we had that approved by the local traffic court judges, and we launched a, uh, 
uh, weekly Saturday traffic school in our city council chambers, charged about $50 per person for the eight hour session. And what made it, I thought, a great idea was that the instructors were the same motorcycle officers and traffic officers that would have given you the ticket in the first place. So we got them out of uniform into coats and ties uh, in order to provide a more relatable experience uh, for the folks that had gotten tickets. We ran the program for about a year. Uh, the judges loved it. We uh, netted about 100,000 bucks after expenses. And then one day the rather uh, ominous letter arrived from the California Department of Motor Vehicles. When I opened it, it was a cease and desist order for operating an illegal traffic school without benefit of a DMV license. So figured, well, we'll just apply for a license. We did so, got rejected because apparently there was no authority in California state law for a city to run a traffic school. So then we decided to seek special legislation. Uh, and <clears throat> upon introduction, we just got hammered by all the private traffic school uh, operators. We decided not to push it. We were going to get just uh, creamed in Sacramento. So uh, that turned out to be, I thought, a really good idea that was fun for a while. And I still think it's a good idea. It's a great idea. Well, it's interesting about this, Tim, and, and this penetrates uh, or permeates the book, which is First off is the diversity of skills that a city manager must have and, and, and be very resourceful, right? Uh, there's no class in city manager school or a master's in public administration is how to set up a new program, you know, blah, blah, blah. You had to think on your feet, you had to do it. And there was what, what, what joins, I think, all of these stories is the one thing, right? So, with the mayor getting married, the one thing was the county attorney or the city attorney's letter saying, memo saying, no, the answer is no, not yes. In this case, great idea, great revenue, great, except it's against the law. Is <laughs> that one thing. And so, gosh, it's a kind of a crazy flop. It was working. It was a good idea. Everybody was liking it, except Sacramento was like, no, 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 no. That's our money you're taking away from us. <laughs> and so you, you can't do it. Give me another example from the book of there was that we did. It was good, except there was this one thing. Oh, gosh. Um, one, of the first, one of the first stories comes from my, my first full-time job with the city of Ventura. Uh, back then, we were called uh, administrative assistants. That was the entry-level position, and I was in the city manager's office. So uh, one day, I got a call to come downstairs. There were a couple of guys that had been cited for trying to uh, uh, open up a Christmas tree lot in the downtown area. So uh, they were demanding to see the city manager and uh, that wasn't going to happen. So they got set to, uh, to visit me, the, the, the new greenhorn on the second floor. They came in and uh, we started talking. I go, what's the problem? And they said, we got uh, cited for running an illegal Christmas tree lot downtown. I go, well, uh, what was the reason for the citation? The first response was we didn't have a business license. And I said, okay, well, that, that's not a big deal. A, a seasonal Christmas tree sales license is not very expensive. And then they said, well, there's one other thing. We also uh, didn't own the property and didn't have permission of the property owner. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, that, that is a problem. But you know, for some reason, and I think this is maybe um, illustrative of my 
I guess, passion for public service and compassion for others, I was, I was determined to help these guys find an appropriate location. So also a thread that runs through the book, but go on. Oh, thank you. So um, it turned out that there was a vacant lot next to the supermarket where I shopped uh, uh, close to my little, my little apartment. <clears throat> and I contacted the store manager and asked whether or not they would be interested for a reasonable rent uh, to host a Christmas tree lot. And they said, sure. So my, uh, my, my, my two new best friends you know, packed things up from the other property, took it over to the uh, lot next to the supermarket. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, well, I'd go grocery shopping. I'd check in with them. They were doing fine. And uh, ultimately, toward the end of the uh, season, there were very few trees left on the lot. So uh, uh, one day I opened the door to my duplex and uh, you know, a beautiful Christmas present fell inside. I opened it up and it was a, uh, a brand new, beautiful uh, you know, fly fishing reel and rod. I picked it up marched it back over to the uh, lot and said, you guys, I thanks so much. I can't accept this. I was just doing my job helping them out. Uh, we exchanged goodbyes, and I thought that's the last I would see of them. And then uh, about a week or so later, Ventura City Hall didn't really have any off-street parking, so I would park in an adjacent neighborhood and walk over a bridge to the second floor of City Hall. Well, uh, along the way, you would pass a, a series of portable buildings that Ventura County was using as courtrooms. And one day as I was walking over the bridge, I heard two voices ring out, hey, Tim, how you doing? And I looked over and it was my, uh, my, two, my two Christmas tree friends um, in orange jumpsuits, handcuffs, and shackled at the ankles. And when I asked them what had gone on, they basically said, well, we had a really, a really good season. We made a lot of money. We took it downtown to a bar, got drunk and got into a fight outside with locals and got arrested. And I go, well, glad to have been of assistance. Uh, good luck in the future, you guys. And uh, yeah, that was not, not the ending I expected to that particular effort to help a couple of people out with a problem. I love the idea that somebody would decide, I want a Christmas tree lot. And it's one thing not to go get the business license. <laughs> the average person would know, but to just park your new business on somebody else's property. Uh, gee, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> uh, you had mentioned in the book, um, and, and I like this, this self-deprecation. There were two times you felt um, uh, you, you probably could have or maybe should have been fired. Um, I, I think they're both exemplary of, again, you know, every interview I do, Tim, is, is kind of neat, is this, uh, this bloodline of service, this bloodline of problem solving, the, the hey, how am I going to serve the public today? What, what can we do differently to solve this unusual problem? But tell me about the time that you, you're like, yeah, if, they, if they'd have fired me on the spot, I, I'd have been like, yeah, you, I deserved it. Well, there were, there were two, as you mentioned, uh, the first in Redondo Beach and then the, uh, the second one in, in Laguna Niguel. But in Redondo Beach, there was a, a very dilapidated old shopping center, not directly on the water, but about a block back from the the waterfront, <clears throat> it was built probably in the in the late '40s, uh, called the Triangle Shopping Center because the parcel it occupied was in the shape of a triangle. Had a very unusual ownership. There were maybe a dozen or so businesses where um, each business owner owned the pad underneath their building, but the 
large parking area was owned in common by all 12 or 13 property owners. And it, it, it truly met the def definition of blight. There were a couple of uh, fire ravaged buildings that were boarded up and vacant. Uh, it had a real eclectic mix of uses ranging from a swap meet to a bluegrass music venue to a punk rock venue, along with the, you know, the charred and burned buildings. And we watched as the uh, private sector tried to redevelop the property unsuccessfully for many years. I mean, it was just an eyesore <clears throat> in a redeveloping area of, of Redondo Beach. Um, after a while, uh, the city council and the community decided that we needed to really use our redevelopment agency powers to acquire the property um, and sell it to a developer for some other use. So we had the property appraised and reappraised, came in about $5 million, as I recall. Uh, we found a development group that wanted to put a beautiful uh, hotel on the property with some related uses. And we reached an agreement that, uh, that we, we tried to acquire the property actually for fair market value. And <clears throat> there was always a holdout or two that wanted yeah, an, an outrageous price. So we decided to use our powers of uh, condemnation, eminent domain, to acquire the property. We got the development group to agree that they would cover um, a purchase price of up to $6.25 million, which was 25% more than appraised value. We had never seen um, a, a, uh, a verdict or a judgment by a jury or a judge that exceeded 25% of, of an appraised value. So we thought we were pretty well insulated. Uh, we went ahead and acquired the property uh, through what they call an order for immediate possession so that the hotel development could start before we knew the final cost of the land. Um, interestingly, the property owners went out and uh, engaged one of the most prominent condemnation defense attorneys in California uh, who immediately demanded a a jury trial to determine the fair market price of the property. Uh, he managed to bring a comparable into the discussion that was the bluff type oceanfront site of a future Ritz Carlton Hotel in, uh, in Orange County, which we looked at and said, boy, that, there's no way that's a comparable property. Our site is separated from the water by a major street, a parking lot, a municipal pool, and it's a block away from our gar gargantuan <laughs> steam plant. Um, the, the, the jury bought the comparable um, hook, line, and sinker and issued a $10 million judgment on a property that we thought was worth at most $5 million and some change. Uh, bottom line is that we only had the developer on the hook for six and a quarter million. So the city had to come up with the additional $3.75 million um, or even take a greater risk to appeal the verdict and then have to come up with additional attorney's fees. So we, uh, we, we bit the bullet. I scrambled to find the money from um, our, our, our Harbor Department reserves, but I felt that it was a colossal miscalculation. And if they wanted to send me packing over that, I thought it would have been clearly justified. <laughs> trying to do the right thing. No good deed goes unpunished, but it sounds like you did not get punished. Uh, give me another quick one. Well, the other one actually occurred shortly after I became the first city manager of, uh, of the city of Laguna Niguel here in Orange County, California. Uh, I had inherited 
a, um, a, a small special district. There had been a pre-existing local government that ultimately uh, became the, the new city of Laguna Niguel. And when you're starting a new city from scratch, it, there are so many things on your plate at once. The one thing that I probably wasn't paying a lot of attention to was the city's investment portfolio. The, uh, the city had, had inherited a pretty good reserve from the uh, independent special district that preceded it. And around, around mid-1994, the uh, Orange County treasurer uh, was facing an election challenge from a newcomer who seemed to be expressing concerns about the safety of the Orange County investment portfolio. At the time, the city of Laguna Niguel had about a $21 million investment portfolio. We had $18 million invested in the county treasurer's investment pool and $3 million invested in the state treasurer's investment pool. As election time approached, I got concerned that maybe there was something to the criticism that was being directed at the existing county treasurer by the, uh, by the challenger. So the finance director and I decided that maybe it was time to diversify the portfolio. Uh, we had never invested in anything other than the county or state local government investment pools. So we ended up interviewing uh, brokerage firms and we devised a plan that we were going to basically uh, move money out of the Orange County investment pool. We were going to uh, put our portfolio into three buckets, $7 million with the state, $7 million with the county, and $7 million with, into uh, U.S. Treasury securities. Uh, we had things lined up. Uh, we were going to make those trades on December 5th of 1994. And on the afternoon before that, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, the word came that the county of Orange had frozen their investment pool and declared bankruptcy. So we ended up with that $18 million stuck there while the uh, county tried to sort things out and try to figure out how to make people whole. At the end of the day, uh, we got back uh, about, about 17 million of the 18 million that we had invested with the county, but we ended up losing $900,000 in that process. Uh, and once again, I felt that if the, uh, if the city council set me packing um, over that one, uh, it would have been equally as uh, justified. Well, what's what interesting common element, and it's just kind of a lesson for, I think, our audience is there are times when as a city manager, you know, that old thing when you get the RFP, nobody ever got fired for um, hiring IBM is the old expression, the big established company. And it sounds like each time you, you, you wanted to go out on a limb, those were the times that obviously if you take a risk, it's called a risk because it's uncertain. Uh, in the case of the last one, you wanted you wanted to actually take on a risk unknown to you. Unknown to you, the real risk was was investing in government bonds, which is the opposite, right? Normally, that's the low risk investment. I want to shift gears with you a little bit, Tim. You've been in the business now almost five decades. Uh, you continue your service through the uh, International City Managers Association, other associations. Thank you, by the way. 
doing things like this, writing the book, sharing with your uh, your comrades uh, in arms, as it were, uh, also trying to serve the public through the role of city or county administrator. Uh, and it's a good read too. But um, share with us a little bit. These are these are tough times, right? These are times where there's a lot of political division in the world. Uh, social media elevates dissenters beyond their their normal numbers. We're dealing with obviously a global national pandemic and throw on top of that, you guys got fires uh, that you have to deal with on a regular basis. What advice would you have for city managers who are coming up through the ranks or those who are established? Uh, how, do you, how do you keep your spirit up? And what do you do? What, what, how do you deal with these never ending challenges, especially these are big ones right now? Well, there are a couple of things that, that come to mind, Steve. I mean, first of all, <clears throat> I would like to thank anybody who ends up listening to this podcast for choosing a public service career. Um, from day one, I've always felt that city management is truly a noble profession. Uh, and managing cities is serious, challenging, and rewarding work. Um, in my opinion, we need the, the best of the best to lead our communities into the future, and I have great, uh, uh, I have great hope um, and uh, uh, and enthusiasm for the the young professionals that I encounter uh, today, even uh, and uh, uh, and and their their prospects for the future. But as I mentioned, managing cities is a is a serious job, and city managers and assistants take their jobs seriously as they should, but I don't think we should ever take ourselves too seriously. I think that comes out in the book. Uh, it's important to pause and uh, take note from time to time um, of, of some of the lighter and funnier moments um, of our journey. Um, and you mentioned it earlier, I think that a, a good sense of humor uh, and a good dose of, of self-deprecation uh, will serve people well uh, in this profession. But I think my, my final comment would be just, and it's in the acknowledgments of the book as well, I've, I've always considered myself to be privileged to uh, be in association with other city managers and other local government professionals. Um, I would just encourage everybody, please keep up the good work because your cities and your communities depend on you. Well, I want to go back to the book for a second. I What I took away was not this zaniness, but through it all, from a young man to a doddering old fool, right? Mm -hmm. um, this guy named Tim Casey, uh, who was very earnest. Um, and, I, and I get that the common element in all of this is the earnestness of trying to solve problems that may have never been have never occurred before, but you're trying to solve these problems. And yes, the book takes a lighter look at that. But while it being a lighter look, there is a seriousness underlying this and an earnestness of really trying to serve the public. Well, I, I appreciate your saying that. Uh, <clears throat> once I stumbled my way into the profession, um, I I got hooked, uh, and I think that the the story I told about trying to help out the, the Christmas tree sales guys. Um, the, the, the title of that chapter um, is Getting to Yes and Ethics 101. And I remember very 
early on in my career, before I became a city manager, I was probably probably in my early days in Redondo Beach as a, as a management analyst. I remember a council member addressing staff, uh, indicating, uh, please stop telling me that we can't do something. Please help me find the way to do something. And I really embraced that. Um, I mean, people come to City Hall and to our county halls of administration with real issues and real problems. And no one's going there because everything's taken care of. Absolutely, absolutely not. Um, it's almost like, uh, uh, <laughs> I, think I, I think I mentioned in the book that back in high school, I took one of those you know, career assessment tests and my profile came out matched most closely, interestingly, to public employee um, or senior pastor. Um, and uh, I saw some similarities in the professions. Uh, City Hall is often the door of last resort for people that just don't know where else to turn to. And my philosophy as a manager was, well, first of all, um, I always made myself available to anybody who walked in the door and said, I want to speak to the city manager. If I was available, I would say, send them upstairs and let's see what's going on. Uh, and I, I guess I always had the, uh, I guess the attitude of a public servant. Uh, these folks are paying my salary and benefits. They're here because they have an issue or a problem or a request for service that hasn't been addressed. Um, and I'm gonna do my darndest to find a way to help them out. And that's really the type of organizational culture that hopefully we cultivated um, in the two cities that I managed. Um, it, it just, it's just a part of my fabric, a part of my being. I think I was uh, you know, put here to serve people and city management turned out to be um, a wonderful platform to accomplish that. Well, and of course, no one goes into city government or being a pastor because they want to make a lot of money. They do it because they're driven to serve. They're driven to solve real problems. And the diversity and the lightness of that that you convey in the book uh, speaks to that. Okay, we have a standing question we ask every guest on the podcast as a way to promote Florida. But you get to promote California and your hometown. Tell us something about Orange County, California, or one of your cities that we probably didn't know about that you think is kind of cool. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to borrow from a chapter in the book. Uh, which is called, uh, we, we Prefer to Turn the Other Cheek. So when I got the job in Laguna Niguel, um, I received a, a congratulatory card from the, the mayor and the city council um, and some of the staff members that uh, would be transferring from that special district I mentioned a few moments ago to the new city. And when I opened up the card, it was curious because every um, every signature was very carefully placed um, in the carefully drawn silhouette um, of a buttocks, of a fanny, <laughs> and, and you know, butt, butt cracks and all. I couldn't figure out what is it. <laughs> well, it, it turned out that uh, yeah, probably the most significant cultural event of the day in Laguna Niguel was the annual mooning of the Amtrak train. And apparently this started as a, uh, uh, as a bet from a, uh, a regular customer 
um, at a local bar down by the railroad tracks called the uh, you know, Mugs Away Saloon. And apparently one afternoon, uh, this particular patron offered to buy a beer for anybody that would run across the street at the passing of the next train, drop their trousers and plant their fannies against the uh, chain link fence uh, as the train and its passengers went by. So that apparently was the reason why all of the signatures in the congratulatory card were carefully placed in drawn fannies. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the tradition continued. It was always, I think, the first or second Saturday of, of July. And it, it grew in proportion to the point where it became an, an all-day party drawing, um, <laughs> drawing people from all over Southern California. I think we got to the point where it wouldn't be unusual for five to 10,000 people to show up and party all day long, a multi-generational from babies in strollers to grandparents, all running across the street each That's time the train lot. came by. <laughs> and um, I kept wondering why the media never contacted us to seek an official city position on the uh, on the mooning of the Amtrak. And, but one day they called and they said, why does the city allow this to occur every year? I mean, basically it's, it's a form of nudity involving thousands of people. Um, and I had a prepared answer and I said, that's because in Laguna Niguel, we prefer to turn the other cheek. And, there you go. <laughs> and it, it, it turned out that uh, for years and years, if you actually Googled Tim Casey, city manager, that quote would come up as the number one hit time after time after time. There you go. 40 plus years of public service and you get the butt shot as your, as your Google legacy. <laughs> well, Tim, uh, you know what? First of all, thank you so much for being on. You know, we get a lot of grief in Florida with Florida man and all that kind of stuff. But it is clear that uh, you, <laughs> we got nothing on you and you got nothing on us with the with the with the, with the pants drop. <laughs> Folks, this is uh, Steve Van Core, and I've been interviewing Tim Casey, who's written a book called The Mayor Married Who. It's a, it's a little bit of a lighter side to city management. I'm reading it. It is a lot of fun. It is a great read. Uh, and if you love city government, as I do, you will love reading this book. Again, this is Steve Van Core. Thank you for listening. This is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Thank you so much for being with us.